Welcome back, friends. We are continuing in our study of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. Today we pick up our study at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 15. Let me set the context again as you prepare to uh, hear Paul's part of the conversation. Uh, he has made a case to the church at Corinth that sometimes because of love and concern and care for our neighbor, we should be uh, eager, free, willing to let go of some of our own rights uh, for the greater good, uh, care of neighbor. Uh, he began back in chapter 8 talking about meat offered to idols. And uh, he makes the case that even though uh, from a Christian perspective, there's nothing um, damaging, doesn't have to be anything damaging about eating the cheap meat um, offered to idols that again, then gets sold by the butchers. Uh, even though there's nothing directly wrong with that, you have a right to eat that. It doesn't, it doesn't have to harm your spirituality. You have the liberty in Christ to do that. He makes the case that um, if, if love of his neighbor required it, and he almost says this directly, he'd become a vegetarian. Uh, he's probably using his rhetorical flourish at that point, but he is, he's making the case that you have to look at the issue, look at the situation, and, and be ready to deny yourself. And sometimes self-denial means letting go of some of your rights for the, for the love of your neighbor. And um, he then, in chapter 9, which we looked at last week, he talked about a lot of his rights as uh, an apostle, one chosen, claimed, and sent by the resurrected Christ uh, to preach the gospel to the world. He has certain rights. He has the right to earn his living, he says, uh, by virtue of his ministry. But he also said in chapter 9 that unlike other apostles, he has given up the right to earn his living from uh, his work of proclaiming the gospel by the, the work of his ministry. Uh, he chose to live bivocationally so that the people that he served did not have to be um, connected to him by way of commercial transaction and um, sustaining him by paying him his living or his livelihood. Uh, but he made it clear in chapter 9, the first part of chapter 9, he has the right God said that he had the right. Uh, the law said he had the right. Had the right. Uh, he used examples from uh, common life to show that he would have the right to get his income from his work as an apostle, but that he gave up that right. He relinquished that right and chose to earn a living as a tent maker and, uh, and not become that burden on the people that supported his ministry. Well, beginning at verse 15... Uh, he's going to continue talking about uh, his reasons for giving up certain rights. Um, that may not be apparent in what he's saying. He's going, he's going to talk rather biographically at this point about his ministry, about his calling, about his calling to preach the gospel, about his life of uh, self-control and discipline. Uh, but he's basically continuing the same argument, that uh, he has reasons for giving up his rights. He has reasons for his lifestyle, his reasons for his lifestyle of self-denial. And we all know as followers of Christ that we're called to a life of self-denial. 
And that can mean a lot of different things in different times, but it certainly can mean from time to time the, the relinquishing of our rights, giving up something that we have uh, the right to uh, enjoy or to obtain. And he's going to talk about that as he talks about his ministry. So with that, let's start at verse 15, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians. Paul continues, But I have made no use of any of these rights. These are the rights he talked about in the beginning of chapter 9. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Again, he's not uh, trying to earn money for the cause with what he's saying as an apostle. Uh, he's, he's saying that's not the reason he's, he's, he's being personal and saying that he's not taking money um, for, for, for the, the support of his preaching the gospel. Uh, he's saying he's not, the money's not the issue here. He could be receiving money for it, but money's not the issue. Uh, he continues by saying, For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Again, he is uh, speaking with his rhetorical flourish. He says, I'd rather die than lose my ground for boasting. The boasting he's speaking of here is he has not been a burden on the people to whom he's been in ministry. He has not um, received from them financial support for his ministry, even though he had the right to do that. Um, he, he, he would rather die than lose uh, his grounds for saying this to the people. Verse 16 Paul says, um, again, rather autobiographically, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Uh, he's saying here uh, that he didn't choose this life. He didn't choose to live out his apostolic calling as a preacher of the gospel. That's what he means by, for necessity is laid upon me. Uh, he was chosen by God. Um, necessity was laid upon him. He was claimed and chosen by God there at that noonday event on the road to Damascus when he experienced the resurrect, resurrected Christ. Uh, that's when he was chosen. This is not a lifestyle or a calling that he chose for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I'm firmly convinced that for someone to enter gospel ministry, it has to be a calling. Uh, I've said to many people over the years who, who are trying to discern a calling to, to the ministry, I say to them, if you could possibly do something else with your life, I recommend that you strongly consider doing that something else. Don't enter into the life of gospel ministry unless necessity has been laid upon you. Unless you can say with Paul, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Um, people entering into the gospel ministry, people looking at the gospel ministry secondhand, uh, never understand the sacrifices of the gospel ministry. Never understand what Paul would term the burden of his churches. The burden that's been placed upon him uh, to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, to be compelled by the love of God 
to uh, bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, that's why he says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He's saying he, he could not survive without preaching the gospel. Uh, he's been chosen by God for this. There's no doubt in Paul's mind that he's been chosen by God uh, to do this. And uh, he, he knows that he, 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 life would be bereft of all it has to offer if for some reason he could not preach the gospel. Uh, you, you, you learn, like, for instance, the book of Acts and 2 Timothy, even when Paul was imprisoned, he still was leading people to Christ. He was leading Roman soldiers to Christ while he was in prison. Uh, it's not an option Paul has to let go of this life of preaching the gospel. Um, I, I'm firmly convinced that for people to uh, give their life to the preaching of the gospel, uh, it, they need to be compelled by God to do that. Um, it has to be a calling. It can't be something that people choose for themselves. It can't be a chosen profession. It cannot be the family business. It cannot be um, a calling that a person chooses because of what they think that calling can add to their life. Um, it has to be a calling from God. And the person that's uh, beginning that apostolic ministry had better have a strong sense of that calling from God. Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Continuing on verse 17, Paul says, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. He's saying if he, if he chose this himself, he would have his wages. He would have his reward. The word in the Greek here, reward and wage, is the same. Um, but he, he's, he's not seeing his reward in this world. Um, his reward, his wage, is something else. Verse 18, he says, what then is my reward? Or you can translate it, what then is, is, is my wage? And then he says, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He, he boasted uh, in himself that he could offer the gospel free of charge to people. He did not want to do anything that could in any way become a barrier or an obstacle to people hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And receiving the gospel and the life that's given to us in Jesus Christ. And that's why he chose to take an income from his, um, uh, from his ministry. He had that other uh, calling in his life. He was a tent maker. He had that vocation, uh, even though he said adamantly that he could have made his living uh, through his apostolic ministry from, from the church. He wanted to make sure that for he himself, that he never put anything in, 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 in between him and the people to whom he wanted to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's why he would not make use of that gospel. So he's going to begin even more so to talk about what it means uh, for him to be a preacher of the gospel. And um, he's, he's, he's very autobiographical, beginning at verse 19 through the end of this text in chapter 9. And I've always seen this text as a text that uh, uh, feels very personal to me also. Uh, as someone who has spent 35 years, or longer actually, I preached my first sermon when I was 19 years old um, in, uh, on the first Sunday of Advent in 1980. So I guess we're, I'm in my 30, 41st year of preaching. 
So what Paul is getting ready to say here is um, it feels autobiographical to me too. But I, I think anyone who has given, given their lives for the preaching of the gospel, this would feel the same to them. Beginning at verse 19, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Paul understands uh, human nature well. Uh, He understands what the Bible teaches from beginning to end, that human nature being what it is, we, we are prone to bondage. Human nature being what it is, uh, we have an addictive personality, and the way we are wired is we, we will be enslaved to something or someone. What Paul says in various places is he made the decision to, to be a servant, a slave to Jesus Christ. And in becoming a slave to Jesus Christ, he finds perfect freedom otherwise. Uh, when we decide to become a slave to Jesus Christ, that's when we cut all of, the, all of the chains that have us in bondage to circumstances, to other people, to other people's um, demands upon our lives, to other people's expectations, to our expectations. The more we become a servant of Jesus Christ, the less we'll become a servant to anything else in our life because that servant life following Jesus Christ has to have first priority in our lives. And Paul's saying this, he said that he has made himself a servant first and foremost to Christ, which then makes him a servant for Christ to everyone else. And that's why he's preaching the gospel. He is in bondage to Jesus Christ, and part of that bondage is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone else. And uh, here he talks about, beginning in verse 20, his... um, evangelistic strategy. And you have to understand what he's saying here really is his evangelistic strategy because you can't push what he's saying here to um, to wild extremes. Uh, it's obvious. Look at verse 20. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law to those outside the law i became as one outside the law not being outside the law of god but under the law of christ which is the ethic of love that i might win those outside the law to the weak i became weak that i might win the weak and then he summarizes by saying i have become all things to all people that by all means i might save some i do it all for the sake of the gospel that i may share uh, that I may share with them in the blessings. He's saying here that um, when he's with Jewish people, he can act like the Jewish people. When he's with Gentiles, those that are not under the law, he can act as a Gentile. Uh, that's why I think when he was in Corinth, he would have eaten the meat offered to idols with those Gentiles. Uh, the Jewish community there probably would not have. Um, he's saying that um, to those under the law, he'll act as one under the law. To those not under the law, the Gentiles, he, he, can, he, can, he can operate in that circle too. Uh, this is his evangelistic strategy. Um, he's saying here that he's, he's, he's not under the law, and he's not. Um, but as a Jew, he chooses frequently in his life to observe the law, 
You see that in the book of Acts. He goes to the temple. He goes to the rituals of purification. He uh, had Timothy circumcised. Uh, he's not bound to do that, but he has chosen to do that for his work with the Jewish people. So uh, you see his flexibility here. You see his adaptive spirit here. Uh, you see how, as he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might win some. Um, you see his burning passion to lead people to Christ. You see that, um, and I think he's being very truthful here, and I think evidence bears it out. He had great empathy with the people around him. Uh, he could understand the people he was trying to reach. He could feel the burdens of the people he was trying to reach. He understood the people he was trying to reach. And uh, his desire to not put anything between those people in the gospel led him to become very, very flexible and adaptable. Now, obviously, this is an evangelistic strategy. Obviously, Paul here is, is talking about non-essentials. He's not talking about the essentials of the faith. He's not talking about uh, the essentials of Jewish Christian morality. He would not have become an adulterer for the sake of all the other adulterers in the room. Uh, we know Paul well enough. It's not the only thing we have from Paul. So he's speaking uh, uh, with rhetorical flourish. He's, pre he's speaking hyperbolically. He's trying to let you see his heart and see his passion for uh, proclaiming the gospel. Uh, that's why he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Uh, he's traveling the world, becoming all things to all people, Jew and Gentile, um, so that he might win them for Christ. Now, again, uh, this, this is obvious from everything else we know from Paul, all the rest of the New Testament. He, he held firm to the essentials. He held firm to the essentials of, of Christian theology and Christian morality. Uh, he didn't waffle on those issues. Um, John Wesley, the founder of the revival movement of which I am part, uh, John Wesley um, made a firm distinction between essentials and opinions. In essentials, we hold firm to those. We cannot compromise on essentials of the Christian faith. Uh, but when it comes to opinions, that's what Wesley called them, when it comes to the non-essentials, when it comes to opinions, um, we can show great grace and love and flexibility. Uh, that's why when it comes, for instance, I'll just use this as an example, when it comes to baptism, uh, our book of discipline as followers in the spirit of John Wesley says that we will... We will immerse, we will pour, we will sprinkle. It's not about the amount of water. It's not about how the water is administered. Uh, there's something deeper and more profound to baptism. So the amount of water that's used in baptism, we would consider that an opinion. We would think and let think uh, as to whether or not you receive communion um, in your pew or at a communion rail. Um, that's not an essential either. Um, we, we can think and let think. We can let there be variety. So one of the most important things we can do in the, in the Christian life is to make sure that we develop that spirit of discernment that helps us understand what is essential and what is not. Uh, oftentimes in the life of congregations, there are things that become very, very dear to particular congregations. They can be important. They can be edifying and beneficial, 
but at the end of the day, they also may be opinions that you can let go of. So you need to be clear on what are the essentials. I'm firm. I, I firmly believe in using the creeds of the church and, and a lot of our worship services. When you look at something like the Apostles' Creed, there's the essential theology of the Christian faith. We can't compromise on that. Um, you know, we you know, if it's something else that's not there, uh, we, we might can uh, live and let live. But those are the essentials of the Christian faith that we see in creeds, such as the Apostles' Creed or, or the Nicene Creed. Uh, and I think part of what the creeds get at is this. When we listen to Jesus speaking to Peter in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, um, after Peter's made his great confession of faith as to who Jesus is, and Jesus then says to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I'm one of those who interpret the rock to be not necessarily Peter himself, but Peter's faith. Peter's conviction, the confession of faith he just made. And by virtue of that, and the rest of the New Testament really, I come to the understanding that the church of Jesus Christ has to be built on a firm foundation of Christology. Who Jesus Christ is, what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's, the, that's the essentials for us. And the creeds get at that. Even though the creeds talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, the bulk of the creeds talk about God the Son, but the creeds also keep God the Son connected to God the Father and God the Spirit. So it's all about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So back to Paul. Paul, when he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some, you have to keep that in its proper proper context. It's his evangelistic strategy. On non-essentials, he's adaptable. On non-essentials, he's flexible. Uh, he, he, he will do whatever is necessary to win the people, but he would never have deviated or compromised on the essentials of the faith. So you can't take what Paul says here out of context, uh, but it is a wonderful, wonderful um, evangelistic strategy. I think those of us in ministry uh, need to be able to be adaptable and empathetic and be able to understand our audiences, be able to understand people's lives. Uh, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. Oftentimes in the Christian community, we spend a lot of times um, exerting great amounts of energy on things that are not really important. We need to learn what to let go of, what not to let go of. There's another great uh, statement in the Christian faith. We're not sure exactly where it comes from. Uh, it frequently is attributed to St. Augustine. Um, the Moravian Church uses, that, uses it as a motto. Uh, Wesley certainly would have believed it. It's this, it's this phrase, this sentence. Um, in essentials, unity... In non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity or love. Uh, and that's a good way to live the Christian life. In essentials, unity. In, in non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love or charity. Um, we, we, we need to live our lives that way. Um, so let's wrap up the text now. He's going to talk about, he's talking about his freedom, but now he's going to start talking about his self-discipline and his control at verse 24. He says, do you, do, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, 
but only one receives the prize. Well, he's using a metaphor here. He's using an image here. Uh, you can never push metaphors or images too far. They, they become untrue if you push them too far. Actually, uh, maybe in a race, only one person wins, but he's using uh, the analogy of a race to, to say something about the spiritual life, the Christian life. And obviously in the Christian life, not only one person wins. Uh, we can all win in the Christian life. But he's, he's, he's using athletics here to paint a picture. Keep in mind, Corinth was uh, within just a few miles of where the biennial Isthmian Games happened in uh, ancient Greece. Uh, the Olympic Games happened in places like um, near Corinth, near uh, uh, Olympia. Uh, th- there were places where those games were held, so they were places that understood uh, first century athletics really well. By the way, I think one of the reasons Paul stayed in Corinth so long, he didn't tend to stay anywhere as long as he stayed in Corinth. He was there 18 months. He did stay two and a half years in Ephesus. But one of the reasons I think he stayed for so long in Corinth was because of the Isthmian games. He probably found a lot of work as a, um, as a tent maker, a leather worker. Uh, because people coming in for the Isthmian games uh, would stay in tents frequently. So uh, Corinth understood the Isthmian, the Olympic games. Paul is, uh, again, he understands his audience. He's drawing an illustration, an analogy from athletics. So he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He's saying to his hearers in Corinth that uh, you, you, have to, you have to see the spiritual life like an athletic contest. He's going to say you've got to put everything into it. You've got to be self-controlled. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to keep your eye on the prize. It can't just be something you think about occasionally. It cannot just be the religious department of your life. But it's got to be who you are. And that's why he's saying, so run that you may obtain the prize. Verse 25, he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So the people who, uh, who uh, participated or competed in the games there in Corinth, uh, they would win a, a wreath. They would, they would win a wreath sometimes made out of laurel, sometimes made out of uh, withering cucumbers, we're told by historians. Um, so they would receive that wreath if they would w- win in the, the games there in Corinth. Paul's saying, though, uh, that those are perishable wreaths. But we in the Christian life, we're running a race, and the wreath, the crown that we're going to be given, will be an imperishable crown. Um, he goes on, verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly, Paul, Paul says. He says, I do not run aimlessly. Um, I do not box as one beating the air. He says, I'm not, I'm not shadow boxing when I run the Christian life. He says, um, and he concludes, verse 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be qualified. So he says he disciplines his body, keeps it under control. He's talking about self-control and discipline here. He's not saying anything to denigrate the body. The body is sacred. That's core Jewish Christian theology. 
Um, that goes all the way from our theology of uh, uh, the creation to uh, the theology of the resurrection of the body. We think the body is sacred. Creation is sacred. So he's not denigrating the body here. Sometimes Christians begin to denigrate the body as if it's not very important. Paul's not denigrating the body here. He's just talking about the importance of self-control and discipline. Because he wants to compete well in this life. He wants to run the race well. He wants to run the race well in a way that doesn't cause him to be disqualified is the term that he, that he uses here. Uh, where he says, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This, this verse has uh, caused a great deal of conversation throughout the history of the Christian community. What does he mean that after preaching he could somehow be disqualified? Well, it could mean two things, one of two things. Um, it could mean that after being in a life of grace, for a period of time, even as a preacher of the gospel, that he could eventually be lost. Um, some people in the Christian community say that's a possibility. Some people in the Christian community say it's not a possibility. Uh, some people say that once you're in the Christian faith, you're going to die in the Christian faith, uh, kind of once saved, always saved. Other people say that um, you're saved by faith. It's all about faith. It's all about grace. But that uh, you could turn your back on Christ. You could quit believing. You could walk away from faith. You could, you could, you could fall outside of the grace that God provides. John Wesley was one who would have said that. Uh, he was afraid people would rest on their theological laurels if they thought that, you know, once in the faith, they had to always be in the faith. Now, it's never about what we do or don't do. It's not about our actions. It's, it's about our faith. God graciously offers us, us a relationship to Jesus Christ, and, and we have to accept and by faith enter into that relationship to Jesus Christ. So... Um, um, John Wesley, in some parts of the Christian community, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, most of the charismatic world, most of the holiness world, uh, the Methodist world, we would say don't, don't depend on the fact that once saved, always saved. Um, you could quit believing. It's never a matter of sin. It's never a matter of your actions or your works or the lack thereof, but that you could quit believing. You could turn your back on Christ. John Wesley said that was a possibility, and that's how he defined use, Paul's use of the word disqualified here. Other people who um, don't want to say that, who, who want to say that once you're in the faith, you're always in the faith, um, and you can't ever backslide so far as to backslide out of the faith, that they would say disqualified here just refers to the loss of uh, rewards or the loss of some of the spiritual benefits of being in Christ. Uh, the way I would summarize it is, I hope that the people who say once saved, always saved are right, um, but I'm, I, I'm going to live my life in such a way that I, I have a conviction that I need to examine myself, to quote Paul, and, and make sure I'm in the faith, as Paul says. I need to live my life in such a way that I, I want to stay close to Christ. I do those things to help me stay close to Christ. I, I don't want to trust on a theology that some people hold dear and some people say is erroneous. You know, if I get to heaven one day, when I get to heaven one day, because it's not based on what I do, it's based on what Christ has done for me. 
Uh, when I get to heaven one day and I, I look back over my life and I learn more of reality, if I come to understand that there was never an option in this world of falling all the way out of faith, I will be fine with that. I will rejoice over the truth of that. I would hate to teach to people that once saved, always saved, that once you give your life to Jesus Christ, um, there, there's, there's no way to walk away from faith. I'd hate to spend my life teaching that and then get on the other side one day and find out I was wrong. And that was basically John Wesley's conviction. Uh, he didn't want to give um, any illusion to people. Um, so we need to come to faith in Christ. We need to exercise our faith in Christ. We need to stay close to Christ. We need to, um, um, we need to believe as if it all is dependent upon Christ, but perhaps we need to pray and work as if it's dependent upon us. Um, and then when we finish the race one day, we, we won't have, have to worry about being disqualified from the race, whatever whatever that might mean. Um, Paul didn't want to get to the end of the race one day after he has preached the Gospels to others and found out that he had become disqualified himself. Don't know all that Paul might have meant by that, and Paul would probably tell you he just never wanted to find out uh, the extent to which we can be disqualified. Once, by the grace of God, we have allowed ourselves to be claimed by God in Jesus Christ, once we have allowed ourselves to be embraced by the grace of God, we just need to, to live in that embrace and um, not test God, as Jesus said one time to the devil during the midst of his temptations. Well, next week we will start at chapter 10. Uh, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians continues this remarkable book. We're going to talk about some of the Old Testament in chapter 10, and he's going to eventually make his way to speaking about some of the worship activity in Corinth. Again, thank you for your commitment to serious Bible study, and it is a great joy for me to share this time with you. God bless you.